Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast with me, Simon Longfellow. And me, Marcus De Silva. This week, how the gig economy firms are faring, the commodity silver, Liberty Global and Disney. And finally, in the big investment, we take a look at how to invest all over the globe within a single investment. Okay, let's get on to the programme. Simon, what has been happening with gig economy companies? Well, basically, we haven't been using them. So not taking Ubers or Lyfts and not booking holidays through Airbnb. So as a consequence, they're tightening their belts uh, quite considerably. Uh, If you take Uber, for example, they have just announced they are cutting 3,700 jobs. That's about 14%, one for of its total workforce. The chief executive said they were looking at all of their costs, fixed and variable, to see what can be trimmed. Uh, He's waived his own salary for the rest of the year to share some of the pain. Right, and where are the cuts being made? The drivers themselves are effectively all self-employed, aren't they? Well, it's not the drivers themselves. Uh, With all uh, gig economy type roles, obviously, you know, you decide when and how long you want to work uh, for yourself. Um, and they've already been hit massively by the fall in demand as people have stopped moving around. Uber reckon that in some markets, demand has actually dropped by as much as 70%. Now, this is the payroll kind of staff, so people in the customer support teams and those people uh, recruiting new drivers and, and other staff. Um, the, the other slight issue for Uber is that the, the actual cost of letting them go isn't exactly cheap either. Uh, Uber reckons it's going to pay $20 million in severance, severance payments uh, to the people it has to let go. Okay, but these aren't the first cuts they've made recently, are they? Uh, No, no, they aren't. Last year, the company made cuts of 800 people in its marketing, engineering and product teams in July and September. And they also closed altogether their Uber Eats businesses in seven different countries. Overall, the share price is down about 10% from the start of the year at just around $28. And they aren't the only firm suffering, are they, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Lyft, which is Uber's main competitor in a number of countries, said last week it would cut its workforce by 17%. And Airbnb, the home-sharing website, said as much or as a quarter of its staff would need to go. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel for these firms? Yeah, there is some light at the the end of the tunnel, actually. Um, the, The... does uh, seem to be some good news, at least for Airbnb anyway. They've come out this week and said there has been a huge jump in the number of bookings in some European countries, uh, those where the, the lockdown restrictions are starting to be eased, so Denmark and the Netherlands specifically. In Denmark, for example, the number of bookings, uh, this is for people who want to stay somewhere else in Denmark, Uh, was at 90% of the level that it was at the same point in 2019. Um, And they've also been prepping to list the company on the stock market. Uh, It's a process called an IPO, or Initial Public Offering, if you want to know the jargon. Their chief exec, a chap called Brian Chesky, has said that the company is ready to go public at any moment. And he hasn't ruled out that that might still mean this year. Okay, great. Thanks for that. Let's move on to something that's been around a little bit longer as a tradable asset than Uber, and this is silver. Simon, what's going on here? Uh, 
So yes, silver, it's a tradable thing and is part of this group of investments known collectively as commodities, which includes other precious precious metals uh, like gold and uh, platinum, as you might expect, but also oil, we discussed it the other week, and things like wheat and corn. And the story here with silver is that the gap between the price of silver and the price of gold has not been as wide as it is now, not only in living memory, but in fact uh, as long back as 1686 when formal records uh, began. There are also actually, interestingly, indications going way, way back before this of of the difference in price. Uh, Apparently there is an inscription uh, in the Karnak Temple in ancient Egypt saying the price difference then was only about 13 times. How big is the gap now? Well, as we speak, it's about 113 times. So gold is 113 times more expensive than silver. Now, some of this is being driven, of course, by the sort of flight to safety of investors who have rushed to buy gold because it's seen as very stable, a very safe uh, investment. That's driven the price of gold up about 12% this year. And what the analysts are saying is that this makes silver look cheap in relative terms, so relative to gold, and also that its price should go up sharply as demand recovers and we start making more you know, solar panels and electronic goods again. Okay, interesting stuff. So let's move on to what you've been looking at. Disney, the beloved entertainment company. What's going on there? Yes, so in case you don't know it, this is the world's largest entertainment company. Uh, It's got some very highly prized assets for the industry, such as Lucasfilm, the studio that makes Star Wars, Marvel Studios, which brings to life all of the Marvel Universe, ESPN, which is a large cable sports channel in the US, and of course, it's Cruises and Disneyland, which is meant to be the happiest place on Earth. It had a quarterly earnings call with analysts and, uh-oh, surprise, surprise, operating profits have taken a coronavirus-induced hit of $1.4 billion, down 91% to $475 million for the quarter. But it recently released its uh, streaming service. Wouldn't that gain in lockdown? Yeah, and you're right in, in some respect. The streaming service has been doing very well. It's called Disney+, Plus, and it houses its all-important studio content, also Pixar, which is the studio that makes Toy Story. Um, And it launched in the US and Canada and the Netherlands in November last year and expanded further afield, including the UK in March this year. And its original target was, okay, in five years, we want to get between 60 and 90 million subscribers. Um, And in half a year, it's got to around 55 million, and that's definitely been helped by coronavirus but this is not making much of a dent right yeah well unfortunately you know it's great news for the for the service but it's still very new it's in a very very early growth and capital hungry phase really it's just it's munching through lots of that as it expands and invests in tech so then you have to look to disney's other business and it has some issues you know the cruise ships are docked the theme parks are closed we're only just seeing the first emergence in china of those opening um, and cinemas are shut which is the big way in which these blockbuster movies can reap back some of those big production costs and the irony is that these act these assets actually acted as a bit of a diversifier pre-crisis and enabled it to perform quite well okay uh, what was happening pre-crisis well the industry is going through lots of disruption and competition and we would have all felt it right so Netflix streaming came along in 2007, 
just after YouTube was getting going and, and it shook up the old model of sort of cable bundles and incumbents and other disruptors have sort of scrambled to launch new streaming services. There are now around 30. Um, but it, it's just led to this massive spending spree in the industry um, and certain content um, is becoming very expensive as it's sort of traded. So all in all, it's splurged around $650 billion on deals and content creation in just five years in order to try and attract eyeballs because when there's lots of competition out there this is this is what they want to be doing is getting their numbers up so great for consumers indeed this has been seen as the sort of golden age of television um, and streaming but it's expensive and stressful for the incumbents i'm sure for disney anyhow although it's other businesses could buoy it against this competition pre-crisis unfortunately it's been these very assets that have dragged it under post and into the crisis as, as COVID-19 has, has hit. So share price, $140 pre-crisis. Now it's trading at around $100. Okay, well, let's stay on media and get onto a deal between John Malone's Liberty Global and Telefonica. Yes, Project Pink, as it was codenamed. Um, these two companies have just announced a £31 billion deal to create a new joint venture that's going to bring together their UK assets. So this is namely Telefonica's O2, the UK's largest mobile network, with Liberty Global's Virgin Media, which is the second largest broadband provider. And I think what this sets the stage for is now to have two big incumbents, the other being BT, um, but also change the competitive dynamic elsewhere in the industry with the smaller players, Sky 3, Talk Talk, and Vodafone. Uh, lots of deals have been attempted in this space uh, before and haven't worked out, um, so it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And this is interesting because of John Malone? Yeah, he is revered in America as a very skilled, genius businessman, really, and empire builder, probably the only media mogul that could really rival Rupert Murdoch. Um, and he's gone from Way back when, he, he was a McKinsey consultant, very skilled. He did a PhD in, in, in um, operational development, so really new businesses inside out. And in, in, when he was in McKinsey, he sort of saw an opportunity. He saw that Wall Street really hated cable and managed to get offered the CEO job of a failing cable company called TCI. And from 1973 through to 1990, he grew its subscribers from 400,000 to 8.5 million. And he did that through a big string of acquisitions um, uh, gobbling up all these sort of little providers and eventually sold it to AT&T for 32 billion um, and then carried on with one of its subsidiaries which is Liberty which is how he's still still going so in America he's you know he's greatly revered as I said and, he, and he's he's also you know he's one of the most active deal makers in corporate history over a hundred billion dollars in deals and I think the thing about this is, is when CEOs are quite enthusiastic about deals, it can often be about building legacy rather than shareholder value. Um, but Malone doesn't fit that mould. He shies away from the press and he um, has made his investors very good returns on capital over the years. Um, so, so seen as very skilled. On the downside, he's also seen as quite ruthless and, and, and creating monopolies in many markets. Um, Al Gore famously called him Darth Vader. And do him and Rupert get on? They do, actually. They do get on. Uh, they're weirdly friendly, I think. Um, they share a political love as well, Mr. Donald Trump. 
and um, President Donald Trump, I should say, and libertarianism as well. Malone used to be the chair of the Cato Institute, which is a very powerful libertarian think tank. Okay, on to the big investment. And this week, we're going to discuss the biggest sector for UK retail investors, for private investors such as yourselves, and that's global equity funds. Now, you might look at markets and think, do you know what, after the recent sell-off, they're looking pretty good value. But you're not quite sure on the geographical focus that you want to have. You know, is it the UK that I think is good value, or Europe, or the US, or Asia? So you can hand that over to um, a fund manager in the form of a, of a global equity fund. And these do exactly what they say on the tin. They, they look at shares anywhere in the world. Um, but have a think about what your goals are, because there are variations with, within these, right? So some of them will be looking to provide income from their shares. Others will be going for just capital growth and not worrying about that income element. Um, the investment style of the manager might be seeking companies that are, which we discussed this in the past couple of pods, companies that are better quality versus those that may be looking at good value. Um, and of course, the, the stock list as well, you know, these do vary quite a lot. So you have quite concentrated stock list, sort of 20 to 30, which could be quite volatile. The share price will swing around quite a bit versus those which have very long stock lists of, say, 200, which is very diversified. Simon, what have you got? Well, so global investing is a, it's a huge topic, as, as you alluded to, and there are literally tons of options uh, for this all across the main types of investment vehicle. And of course, the skill here is not just picking individual companies, but is also making calls about which countries or which continents are going to perform well relative to others. So to give you an example of how this might work, let's look at the Bankers Investment Trust, which has been investing around the globe quite a long time, since 1888. It's been around uh, a while. Now, what's happening here is that the lead fund manager, a chap called Alex Crook, he makes the decisions about where in the world to invest. And then he has a team of country experts who deploy that money into shares of the companies in their particular region. At the moment, just under a third of the money is in the American companies. So Microsoft is the biggest of those, but it also covers the UK, Europe, Asia, and emerging markets. Uh, there are lots of other investment trusts that take a global approach, uh, Alliance Trust and Scottish Mortgage being two good examples. Okay, and what do you have as an ETF? Okay, so as an example of an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, I've chosen the Vanguard Developed World ETF, and as the name suggests, this tracks the performance of the large and medium-sized companies in the developed world only. So its biggest region that it's exposed to is North America at the moment, and about 65% of the ETF is invested in companies there. Overall, there are 2,200 companies in the portfolio, which is a lot by any measure. 20% of those companies are technology companies currently. And as you might expect, there are some really well-known names in the top 10 holdings, including, again, uh, Microsoft, but also Apple, uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Nestle, and the investment manager, ComBank, JP Morgan. And finally, a managed fund. Well, I've chosen this one as an example to show that you can invest globally to grow your money or capital, but you can also invest globally to generate an income. 
and it's the Artemis Global Income Fund. At the moment, the yield on, is on the fund. That's just a measure of the income that it pays out. It's over 3%. It aims to achieve a rising income uh, combined with growing your money, growing your capital from a wide range of investments. And it's not restricted in the choice of those investments. So regardless of the size of the company, uh, the industry that it trades in, or you know where the portfolio is split geographically, it, it doesn't uh, have a benchmark or even follow a benchmark. So the managers are free to pick whatever, whatever they like. Um, the biggest holding, therefore, is one you've almost certainly never heard of. I hadn't. It's a company called Ryeway. Uh, they're a provider of infrastructure and services to the broadcast industry. Okay, thanks, Simon. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe through your chosen podcast channel. And you can check out the videos on our website at steps2investing.com for more. We'll be back again with more ourselves next week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.